Hey all, good morning. Welcome to the Common Good Podcast. Doug Paget here. Hey, it's a uh, significant day in the life of this country. It's the day after Donald Trump has been indicted yet again for crimes, this time crimes of election defrauding and the rest. Uh, Rob Ryerson and I did a commentary on that last night, which is on our YouTube channel and our Facebook and Twitter spaces. So if you're interested in that commentary, you can watch it there. Today, uh, it's Wednesday, August 2nd. And on Wednesdays, we like to have a conversation about faith, politics, and the common good. Today, I'm going to show you a presentation that I did at the Wild Goose Festival in North Carolina a few weeks ago. Wild Goose Festival is a wonderful festival of spirituality, art, music. It's outdoors. Uh, you'll notice that it's an outdoors um, tent-like setting. So there's people milling about. Uh, it's, uh, there's music happening in some tents. I'm presenting to a group of people in a grassy field. And um, so that's going to be the presentation. It's about 45 minutes long. Hope you enjoy it. It's um, sort of a lot of what we talk about around here, but in a different way, in a succinct way. At those kinds of presentations, one of the things I personally like to do is have some music and then also have some poetry. So we're going to start the the presentation here that you're going to see with Michael Toy, who's one of my favorite people in the world and one of my favorite poets. And he had just that morning written a really great poetry piece on deconstruction. And so Michael is uh, going to be the first person that you see on the stage and then uh, uh, giving that, that uh, brief poem that he had written, and then I will follow him. Uh, and look, uh, even though we're showing a video, we're doing this as a live stream. So I know that there's people who are uh, our regulars on the, on the live stream. We love having you around. If you want to chat, I'm going to be sitting here uh, right in space, uh, right here. Uh, put your comments up on the screen. So if you want to make some comments, hope that you'll interact. Uh, I will be uh, here at your helm uh, putting up your, your comments. So if you're on Facebook or YouTube, but especially on YouTube. If you don't watch us over on YouTube and you're willing to, it helps. Uh, YouTube is a place that we like to spread our videos. And you watching them there causes more people to watch them. It's the magic of an algorithm. So if you're able to watch it over on YouTube, we'd very much appreciate that. So uh, here it is, a uh, presentation from the Wild Goose Festival, Faith, Politics, and the Common Good, with the lead-off from uh, the poet Michael Toy. Uh, thank you, Doug. All right, so this poem uh, is called Deconstruction for the Doom. There's the word deconstruction is floating around a lot. It's not memorized, so I apologize for that. Here we go. Hmm. I have to remember how to do this. Deconstruction for the doomed. If you've heard this word, and you didn't run screaming for the room, but you stopped to listen, like maybe there was something there, then this will be a helpful guide, because there are precisely four things you need to know. God, I can't do this with one. <laughs> Deconstruction is not destruction. If you want to blow the whole thing up and walk away from the flames like an action hero, with it in the background, striding towards a sunset with no Sundays in your future. Oh, God bless you. <laughs> Do that. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, but this isn't a poem for you. Okay, two. Deconstruction is love. So, for some reason, even though you probably should have, you didn't blow the whole thing up and walk away in slow motion. So, you got to ask yourself, why? Now, it doesn't matter how ugly that reason is. Um, why are you still here? And you have to learn to love that. So just because it's a paycheck, yeah, love that. Because you want to somehow honor a legacy, yeah, love that. Because you're just lost and don't know where else to go, love that. Love, love, love. But you have to love the reason that you're still here. Okay, three. Deconstruction technically is reading between the lines or listening as the lines read the spaces to you. So once you see the context and the subtext and the texture of the paper and the color of the ink and what you had for breakfast and who didn't eat breakfast that morning, you'll find angels singing a song that someone once heard when they wrote the line. You're gonna find the dead ghosts who haunt those words. You're gonna find the demons telling you that if that's where that song leads, you should just blow it up, blow it up now! So gather up the angels and the ghosts and the demons, and you're ready for four. Oh, wait. I forgot. Should have led with this. The first rule of Deconstruction Club is you don't talk about Deconstruction Club because love is knowing that unless 
Somebody feels the ghosts and hears the angels. They will probably see you as a demon. Okay, now we're ready for... Now this is five of, of a four-step thing. Deconstruction is a mad tea party with you and the ghosts and the demons and the angels, and you're seated around a table talking and trading seats over and over again until none of you is certain which one is which. All right, six. Deconstruct dead. How do you know when you're done deconstructing and it's time to reconstruct? So deconstruction is a secret speakeasy behind a hidden door. It's a flash mob on the roof. It's a protest on the front steps. It's a game of hide and seek in the hallways. All of this on, inside, around a structure that is still standing. And so finally, no, fuck it, just blow it all up. That is Michael Toy. If you would like uh, to make some poems, Michael uh, is hosting a poem writing experience constantly over at the Vote Common Good Tent right behind us. So if you're into that, or if you're a poet yourself, or a mus musician, or just have something to say, we have a microphone and speaker over there that anybody can come use anytime you want, your chance to just say some things. But if you want to work on poetry, you can find Michael over there. If you want to be on our podcast, let me know. We'll interview you for our podcast. And if you just want to say something or sing something to the rest of the people here, we'd love for you to do that. So feel like you're invited. Feel like you're in on this. Well, thanks for coming to this, uh, this workshop. We're going to go until uh, 1.50. And our good friend, the, the host of the tent, has a sign that she said is going to tell me seven minutes left, five minutes left, two minutes left, and stop. And I suggested that when she does that, she comes up to the front and shows all of us so that we're all in on this thing together, right? And we don't have a secret deal that you're all just experiencing, but she shows it to us all. And then you say, oh, he's, he needs to stop now. So uh, when she puts up the stop sign, you just applaud. And then that's it. And if I'm still talking, you just get up and get about your business because we have a deal. We're ending when the time is to end. Fair enough? All right. Uh, Faith, Hope, and the Common Good is the name of this, partly because the organization that I'm a part of is called Vote Common Good, and we're trying to suggest that a person could have a political identity that is guided by the common good, as opposed to some of the other ways we form our political identities. Now, religion and politics are both identity elements in our society and in our lives. Think about how we say it. I am a Christian. I am a Democrat. I am a Green Party member. We talk about ourselves and our identity in political and religious terms that capture us as how as uh, to explain who we are to ourselves and to others. That often means that many of us set aside other things we know are good and right because these identities that we hold place a demand on us. That's the thing about identity. It puts a opportunity in front of you and puts a demand on you at the same time. So when we all start navigating our political and religious identities, we are going to either not live up to the demands or choose to follow the demands. And this goes on constantly, right? For some of us, we've sat in churches and all of that battle is just going on inside of our heads, right? We're just like, I don't know if I'm still going with this thing or not. And I'm not sure that I believe any of that. And that's just those of us that are pastors and preachers while we're <laughs> preaching, right? We are in the midst of it. And we're looking around the room and we see the other people with the same curious look on their face. And we're like, okay, we got a thing going now. We, we both know. Because identity is never fixed, because identity is always being interrogated, if it's healthy, and because identities should be permeable and should be transferable. But for many of us, our level of commitment to something tends to mean that we're not going to interrogate the systems that give us our identity. So when we talk about political identities and religious identities, many of us have found that those became wedded together at some point. I have friends that went to church and they got their Christianity, their Catholicism, or the Protestant versions, and it came with a built-in commitment to being a Democrat. Everyone they knew was a Democrat, 
everybody voted for Democrats. They have a picture of John F. Kennedy in their mom's kitchen that tells you that you're right next to uh, a cross and you are a Christian who votes for Democrats. And there's people for whom their political identity became wedded to Republicanism. It's as if they pulled into the drive-thru at Wendy's and ordered the number two and it just came with the fries. They didn't know you could swap the fries for a salad because they never tell you that at the, at the drive-thru. What do you do, though, when you want to let go of the political identity but keep your faith identity? Or what if you want to let go of your faith identity and pursue a new political identity? Our suggestion is that for both our faith and for our politics, the common good can be the demand. Uh, I, I used to be a pastor of a church that Tim and Susie were part of in Minneapolis. Um, and one of our sayings that we incorporated into our life there at that church was that we would exist to be a benefit and blessing to all the world. That we saw our role to benefit others, to give goodness to others, to be a blessing, not to receive a blessing only. Right, this, this desire to make the commonness more commonly good for more people. In the political world that in Minnesota, where I grew up, uh, a person named Paul Wellstone was a senator. And Paul Wellstone had this great line that I like to use all the time. We all do better when we all do better. So let's figure out how to make us all do better because then we're all actually going to do better. We're not all going to do better when some people do better and let it trickle down or when some people hold the power and others don't. So our political identity can be built around this notion of the common good. So our faith and our politics can call us to the common good. And that raises some really important thoughts, I would imagine. What's common and what's good? And frankly, for an organization like ours, vote common good. Really, voting's going to do the trick? Like if we just say yes to this candidate and not that one, that's sufficient and enough? So these become really haunting kinds of questions, right? What is common and what is good? Well, when it comes to common, I don't know, we'll talk about that a bit. But when it comes to good, I have the answer to that one. That's why you came into a tent to listen to somebody who can tell you the answer to it. What is good? You know what's good. You know it. You don't need me to tell you. Might be some things that you're like, I'm not sure if it's good, but there is something I know is good, and I'm going to be committed to that. In a tent like this, which is, I don't know, somebody already counted the number of people in this room because you're somebody like me that when you get into a room, you just keep counting things because it helps your mind stay active. Like somebody who knows how many wires there are in here and how many lights and how many speakers. And I don't know, 60 people? Is that a fair number in this room? Okay. Oh, we're going to count in a minute. There's a counter. Wild goose. We count because people count. Yeah. <laughs> I'm the only one that gets the count? Amen to that. Amen to that. And we'll share the number with everybody else because it's, it's our number, right? Because it really doesn't matter. I've been, I do this kind of political work and people often say, and, and religious work, and people will say things like, well, how many people are you impacting? Especially around religion. I'm like, okay, there are 7 billion people on the planet. If I have a church with 10,000 people, that is a rounding error that doesn't count for global impact. There aren't enough, there's no one that has enough people behind their idea to be like, well, there's success at any level, right? There's just not enough. Uh, uh, people in any movement. So I'm just not interested in that question. But I am interested in the question, can you stay alive and motivated in the things that matter to you because of your faith and because of your political identity? Does it work for you? Is it working? We do a lot of conversations with people who are trying to detach their Republican identity from their religious identity. That's a whole thing that's going on. Maybe some of you have experienced it yourself. You had two commitments that felt like they were right in line with each other, your political identity and your religious identity, and they worked out. And then at some point, you realize this thing turned, and you're like, oh, they're not in tandem. They are two separate choices that I can make. And there might be another one over here, and there might be something over here, and maybe there's another. And you've got a handful of things to be choosing from. And that move from these two things being in alignment to these two things maybe being in opposition to one another works in people's lives in some really powerful ways. 
We're gonna do some Q&A here in like two minutes, but I just wanna inject this in and then we'll talk a bit about it. Um, there are a lot of people who really struggle with letting go of an identity. It's a profoundly dif difficult thing to do. And there's some people who are gonna get more hardened into a political identity the more they feel it slipping away. You just grip it a little tighter. We were working on a microphone stand over at that booth you're gonna go to and do some poetry or sing some songs or make a statement. We had two pliers trying to move this nut that got stripped on this thing. Literally, we had five people standing around, two sets of pliers, and we're trying to move this thing. And it kept slipping, kept slipping and slipping. And sometimes that's what we feel like is happening. We're trying to grab onto something and yet it keeps slipping and slipping until we reach the point well, just screw it. I'm just not going to fight with it any longer. But that's not the people that show up in a tent like this on a hot, sweltering day on some Friday in July in North Carolina, right? You're those other kinds of people that are still willing to work on it a little bit. One of the primary questions, there's, there's three questions that we can ask. I think one is really primary, about someone's belief in what is good. And that is, what do you believe? It's a great question. Ask people. And when you're in political, religious conversations that have strife amongst them, with parents or children or siblings or neighbors or coworkers or religious leaders. It's great to ask someone, what do you believe? Because when we think we know what they believe, we've missed a great opportunity to build on what we already knew. Rarely have I ever asked someone, tell me what you believe about X, Y, and Z. And they said something, I'm like, honestly, I had every one of those. I, was, I had you nailed. Because that's not how it works. So the question of what do you believe, super important, ask it honestly. The second important question is, why do you believe it? From where does that come? What's your information? What's your background? Like, where did you, where, where did you hear that? That's an interesting thought, right? Different question, what you believe versus why you believe it. But the third is the magic. That is the question, what does this belief do in and for you? How does it function in your life? Because none of us believe things that don't serve us in some way. Now, they may not serve us beneficially, but our beliefs are performative in our lives. They do a thing. And when we can understand for ourselves and for other people, what is that belief doing for you? How does it function in your life? What's it giving or taking from you? That's a really different question. That's a more dangerous question than what do you believe and why do you believe it? But what does it do for you and in you? Okay, that's a real one. In fact, that's a great question for a lot of us to ask whenever we're feeling positive about our beliefs, especially in politics and especially in religion. And when we realize that the, perf that the, the effect of that belief in our lives is something we don't want anymore, that's when we're in a quandary. Because our beliefs are not self-chosen. They've appeared, they show up in us. All of a sudden, they're just there. And it's not even like we can let go of them because our relationship to our beliefs is not holding them for the love of it all. They're holding us, or our beliefs are tormenting us, or our beliefs are encouraging us. They're, they're journey members, they're, they're passengers in the car of our imagination. That's what's going on with our beliefs. Here's how we all know that. Pick something you believe in, and then stop believing it. It's really hard, right? So what do we end up doing? Not stopping beliefs, but swapping our beliefs, one for another. From things that we believed to another thing we believe. Do you remember being a child or maybe watching a child use the monkey bars uh, in a playground the, with the rungs that are that way, and you'd grab one, and then you'd swing over and grab the other one? Maybe you're like me that I was terrified when I had two hands on it, that I would, if I would let go of one hand to grab another, if I would fall or not, because I never felt like my hands were as strong as my body weighed. I'm a big, big person. I was, you know, like six foot, 160 pounds in sixth grade. You know, it was a real six, six, six magic moment. <laughs> so when we're doing those, I'm like, oh, there is no way I'm one handing this thing. And if what someone was telling me was, not let go of the monkey bar so you can grab the next one, but just let go of the monkey bar and hang there by one hand. We just don't do that internally, metaphorically, spiritually. But what we are willing to do is swap it one for the other. 
when someone says, are you willing to take a risk and let go of that bar so you can grab the next one? Then it becomes a possibility. But we're not just letting them go because our beliefs don't belong to us. We belong to them. And now we're having to negotiate those beliefs, right? You wake up in the middle of the night, you're thinking something about yourself, your friend calls and you look at your phone and you're like, oh, or oh. Like those are just internal reactions that visit you. So when we start talking with people about faith, politics, and the common good, and what the good could be, and how could we live in this world together, we're not inside of a system and a structure of ideas. We are inside of personal dilemma, personal dramas. I have a friend that likes to distinguish between a problem and a predicament. He says, problems have solutions. There are many problems, and we know the solutions. Let's kick them in, right? Small little petty problems, big ones, we're like, honestly, we can fix this, here we go. But most of the things that seem to be disturbing to us, they're not problems. Race isn't a problem in America. Race is a predicament. And predicaments require multiple responses to moments of drama. Problems and solutions are great when they fit, but predicaments require multiple responses to live into a new drama. And that's the project that we all need to be up to. The reason I say all of us is because that is the project we're all up to. That is the thing we're actually doing. We are trying to figure out what is my response to this predicament? Not just what is the answer to the problem? Now here's the thing about politics as I've learned it. And we're an organization that works a lot with politicians. We help politicians know how to connect with faith voters because we want to see more faith voters have agency in their political identity than they currently have, especially those who feel tormented by a Republican identity and want to keep their faith identity but want to let the Republican identity go. It's hard. It's really hard work. So we spend a lot of time with people and talking to people about, about all manners of these things. And when you say to someone, tell me your story of your belief, not that your belief isn't true, it's a story like that, but how did you get there? What does it do for you? What's happening in you now? Politics, on the other hand, can, this is what I get from working with a lot of politicians, is I came to Congress, I came to the State House, I came to the school board to solve a problem. And I'm going to find this, I know the solution, I'm going to solve the problem. Then they get there and they realize, oh, we're in the middle of a grand drama. We're in the middle of a predicament. Uh-oh, this isn't something I can solve. We need to figure out multiple responses to this, and we're going to need all of you to respond in some way to, to handle this predicament or to deal with this. That's a really different project. So our politics don't serve us well. So the citizens of a nation, I would love to say, should be encouraging us to declare this is not a problem. Gun violence is not a problem. Inclusion is not a problem. The climate is not a problem. They are predicaments that draw us into huge dramas that have massive consequences that we need all kinds of responses to those things. Now, some of us find that kind of language really fun and encouraging. They're like, oh yeah, so I'm not a problem solver, but I'm a responder. And some of you are first predicament responders and you are ready to go. And you might not have a lot in your bag of tricks, but you find that bag of tricks of what your thing is and how you can do it. And all of a sudden now, you're off and running in responding in positive ways to change the narrative of this drama. But we're not just fixing a problem here or there. I mean, we should, and people do that all the time. Sometimes they get blended together. You call your plumber and you're like, hey, I got a leak and it's coming through my ceiling. And they'll come out hoping it's a problem, right? Got to fix it, and then I'm going to go, and you're going to pay me $742, and it's going to be, we're all going to be happy because it was a problem. And then the plumber says, hey, can I talk to you for a minute? You don't have a problem. You have a drama on your hand that you have multiple rotting pieces of structural wood in your ceiling. Where are we at? Ten minutes? Oh, Thank you for that, and do not give us one extra minute. These people have important things to do today. So distinguishing between problems and predicaments is super helpful, especially when we're determining what is good. When do we see it? And what can politics do for the common good? My friend Shane likes to say, 
When I deal with politics, I'm trying to do harm reduction, not problem solving. Can we think about it as a harm reduction strategy? So sometimes he says, I'll vote for somebody, even though it's not, but I think they'll do less harm than somebody else. Or I'm asking them to help us deal with grand predicaments in our society. The same goes with faith. And this is why political identities and religious identities often become wedded together. Because our faith is also a multiple response reaction to multiple predicaments. That's why the preaching seems so silly sometimes when it's problem-solution oriented and not predicament resource development sermons or our music or our structures or the narratives we're telling about it. God's got a plan, I've got a problem. No, you've got a problem, God's got a plan, and the choice is up to you, that kind of thing. Yeah, no, not really. I think we're living in a grand drama that has all kinds of stuff going on, and if I feel like if I move any one piece, it's gonna move all the pieces, and now I don't know what to do. So when we start to ask people, what do you believe? Why do you believe it? What, what function does it have? That's drawing us into the drama, realizing that these are human beings who do things at night, like go to bed, and have dinner. I heard a comedian say once, when I'm around super intimidating people that have more power than I do, I just like to think some point tonight, they're gonna be laying on their pillow, they're gonna slightly sit up, turn their pillow over to the cool side, lay their face back down and go, ah, that's so much better. It's like, that makes me feel like we're doing the same thing at night. They have more power now, but when they lay on a pillow, just like the rest of us, they're gonna find the cool side and it's gonna feel pretty great. What he's trying to suggest in that little comedic pitch, is these are people system structures. Now, there are systems and structures that feel like they're just running on their own. They're chat GPT level of like, I don't know, it's just doing stuff with large language models. I don't even understand. I don't think there's anybody even behind this, right? There's just the invisible hand moving the powers. Until we look around and we're like, oh yeah, that invisible hand, there it is. There's that hand. I see that hand, right? That's what we end up finding ourselves in the midst of our grand predicaments. And if the common good, just the notion of who we leaving out and are we common enough and good, is it good enough? Do you, have, have you had somebody talk to you about the book of Genesis using it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good, it was good. Is that six, seven? It was very good. Most of us, when we hear good, you know what we compare it to? Bad. It's good and bad. The good, bad, and the ugly. Got a, a, a subtitle right there, right? The good, the bad, and the ugly. But in the book of Genesis, it's not arguing with bad. It was very good. It's not an alternative to, it was kind of bad. It's an alternative to, it's perfect. In the early Mesopotamian age, when the New Testament, when the old, when the books of Genesis were coming into being, the countervailing belief system was that the gods lived in perfection, and through a series of emanations would impact the earth to bring it to perfection. And perfection is a real problem. On the other hand, good, oh, we can do good. We're not gonna do perfect, but we can do good. Do you know the psychological notion of a good enough mother? It's a really great idea. Perfection or total absence aren't gonna work. But good enough works for any of us in our primary nurturing relationships. So in a lot of uh, family systems therapy, they talk about pursue the narrative of the good enough mother. When you're thinking about your own mother or if you are a mother or whether you're male or female and you're performing mothering tasks for people, the good enough is good enough. But deep down, we really love a little perfection, don't we? Like, let's just get it right. Vote common right. Vote common correct. Vote common pure. Vote common perfection. Yeah, vote common good. Okay, I can give you that. We can get to good, right? And good is good enough because in so many places, people aren't experiencing goodness, let alone greatness, let alone perfection. So good's attainable. Okay, so we have like seven minutes left, five minutes left. Can we talk a bit? Somebody have something? Someone thinks I have more. Okay, uh, no, so till 150, is that when we're going? She says, relax. Does that seem like something I'm interested in? <laughs> Thank you for that. That's a great encouragement. I will try. Yes. So, 
we've got a rodeo up. So speaking about voting, um, where I live is a Republican stronghold, and often we don't have anything but Republicans to vote for. Can you speak about that at all? And don't tell me to run for office. Well, my first bit of advice is do not run for office. My second bit of advice is find somebody else in town that'll run for office. Okay, so a couple of things, truly. 88% um, 80, of congressional seats are already determined which political party is gonna have that seat. 12% are up for grabs in, between political parties. Some high number of those 88% have no one contesting them. How many people live in a town where the congressperson or state legislator has no, no competition? It's amazing, right? Like literally no one. There's not anyone on the ballot. Not just they're not gonna win, there isn't anyone. So that's worth solving. But until that actually is gonna, you know, change power, what we should and can do is say to our Republican friends, if that's your dilemma, and if you have dilemmas with, you know, independent uh, politicians or Republican or Democratic voters, is to ask them to, is it possible that there could be a better version of what they think is good? Right? Is there, is it possible? Possibility is a great term. It's like the word maybe. Oh, one of the greatest terms in human experience is maybe, right? It's not just a pass off that we all have done to children and grandchildren at some point, like, well, maybe. But truly, maybe, it's a possibility. Is it possible that maybe there's a better version of the things that you think are good. So to ask our friends and family that. But here's the big thing. Most people spend almost zero amount of time thinking about their political identity. It just exists. It's just in there. It's not challenged, it's not interrogated, it's not brought up. They don't ever think about it. In fact, if you say, well, you know, your party stands for such and such, they'll be like, oh, I, I didn't know that, yeah. Or, did you know your representative has this first name? Nope. Didn't know that either, just don't know. There are so many people who don't know much about any of this stuff. So helping people be, have an opponent is a really good thing for democracy. Like if I was doing a democracy, what makes democracy good? Yeah, like choices are good. I come from a, a, a state and a city that has ranked choice voting, which means you don't just vote for one, you vote for your first, second, and third. Where? Minneapolis. Uh, in Minnesota, uh, which if you're not from there, that's not Michigan, that's not Montana, it's the other M state that exists in there. Uh, the problem most people have with ranked choice voting though is they don't have three choices. They barely have in their minds. They're like, I don't know any of these people. It's like voting for school board members. I don't know who they are. I'm gonna pick the name I think is the most fun sounding. That's how I've done it in the past. Anybody else walk into a voting booth, looked at names on voting things and be like, I have no idea. So then we resort to our party affiliation, not a common good credential or something. So it's, um, you're likely not gonna change the power balance with the Republicans in your town, if that's the thing you're, you're onto. But there's a better version of the things they think are good than the ones they're currently taking. So when you see yourself then as an ally and an opposition, you would rather they not be your representative, but as long as they are, you'd like them to have maybe a little better version of the thing that gets them elected. Because the beauty of that approach is, now you're both responding to the predicaments and not seeing a problem being solved by a different candidate, right? Because you're in on it together. That's one of the real struggles, is that we don't honestly tend to believe that people who believe differently from us are in the same project we are in. We tend to believe that they're trying to unravel our project. Now, I'm just doing a little self-talk here, like a lot of presenters do, right? So I'm speaking to myself more than I am you, and if that drive-by happens to help you, you know, a little drive-by wave there, and you're like, okay, I got that one, great. But if not, let's find a way to pay a little bit more attention. But most people don't know. And worse, well, we're, and, and also, they don't care. They really don't care. I mean, I know this because we travel around the country in all kinds of ways and talk to people all over. Oh, they really don't care. And they uh, don't 
and they don't vote. Yes, yes. People rarely do what we want them to do. It's one of the, it's one of the dilemmas, right, to our lives. Some of you, you've nailed it. People in your life, people you don't know, they're kind of doing the stuff you're hoping they will do. Most of us don't have that experience. So we start with that as, that is not the problem to be solved. That is the condition under which the drama is unfolding, right? So um, when I say to myself, honest to goodness, why do people not vote? I want to move that out of a problem solution because when we see there's a problem that people are not utilizing the solution to the problem, it just makes me crazy in my brain, right? I want them to do something about that. Fix it. We did a cross-country bike ride from San Diego, California to St. Augustine, Florida along the U.S.-Mexico border, a thing called We the People Ride, and we're making a, a documentary about it, moving back and forth across the border on the 67-day, 3,146-mile bike ride. The road surfaces in much of Texas is just simply a problem that needs to be solved. It's just bad. That chip chip whatever, I mean, just unbelievable. So for hours, day after, you know, riding 50 or 70 miles on this stuff, you're just like, oh my gosh, I'm going to get home and I'm going to call someone and find out what they have to do in Texas where I don't even live to fix that road because it's just a, and it's maddening. When we take that energy and apply it to human structures and conditions that are really a drama and a predicament, we get really frustrated. So my advice is, Bring the opposition in as your co-collaborator on something better than what it is now. Super hard, but I think it's aspirational. And it would be great if we said to those around us, hey, I, I see you in on the same project that I'm in on. What can we do about this? But look, that's hard because some of these people want to storm capitals and some of these people want to, you know, uh, put kids in cages. And I'm, no, I'm not up with that. That's a problem we need to solve, but it's a problem set inside of a grand predicament. Never miss a good walkout, though. It's a, rule of, it's a rule of our church. Like, if everybody has to leave early, you stand up and you tell us why you're leaving. <laughs> it's always a great one. Because all of us are figuring it out right now. We're like, wow, I wonder why he's leaving. Did he have a lunch date? Or did he just that, finally broke the straw? Like it's, you know. All right, anybody else have a, uh, something you'd like to say, comment you want to make, uh, question you want to ask? If I can't get this all Yeah, the question, uh, if, if I heard it uh, uh, accurately, was there's a number of younger people, especially inside of black communities, but also in white communities, a lot of young people are like a lot of other people who don't vote, so how can we get them to do it? I'm going to say two things. One is, you can't, so don't. The other is to paint a different picture of what voting does. Right? A lot of people don't vote. They don't understand. A lot of people don't vote because they don't want to feel stupid. A lot of people don't vote because they think it's all BS. A lot of people don't vote because they just think this is all so corrupt. I don't want to even get myself into it. I don't even want to be in, in the zone. We like to suggest that, that people swap out the me or the you that they're voting for. So to vote on behalf of someone else and not on behalf of yourself. So we like to suggest to people that you think about a foster child who can't yet vote, an incarcerated person who can't yet vote, a person who's come to this country and doesn't yet have access to voting. Could you vote on their behalf? In other words, could you become a voting surrogate for someone else? Because you don't care, and I don't want to... Second, difficult, second most difficult thing to changing someone's mind is getting someone to care. So if you can ask people something they care about, and a lot of people who don't vote would love to serve someone else. So rather than voting their own self-interest or for a cause to attach it to a person, you will vote on behalf of so-and-so. And that can be a really powerful mental shift for people. Third point of my two important points. 
let's stop burdening younger generations to fix the stuff that we've all created into a mass dilemma. Right? Now, they should. They should come along, and they, they should do it too. But holy moly, I don't want to be Billy Joel here, but, like, they didn't start the fire. This stuff has been going on for time and time. And then to say to them, hey, why don't you come along and be our fixer on this thing? Not always helpful to someone who's then said, now I got to carry this burden on behalf of all of the rest of you. So to invite them to join you in the thing you're working on on behalf of someone else might be a moment of magic where some people will say, okay, I can see this as an others-focused pursuit. So then you can talk a little bit about policy if you wanted to, but most people don't vote on policy. Let's just be clear. They vote on identity, right? So policies uh, should be there, but it's the, it's the tableware, not the meal. Um, but you can then say to them, this particular policy really has great impact on someone. If you would be willing to vote based on policy for this person, because they don't have politics and voting as an internal identity. So they're not swapping a, a political identity for another identity. They're swapping a behavior for a different behavior. And sometimes the change of behavior needs an exceptional set of circumstances. So Samir, uh, who's sitting over there and we started this whole project together, likes to say, when you go into a voting booth, it's between you and your ballot. You can do whatever you want in there. You're free from the pressure. No one needs to know, you don't even have to tell anybody. So saying to people who feel that voting is not important, say, I know some people for whom it is, and would you be willing to do it on their behalf? It's kind of a way, it's just a way to shift the, shift the argument away from, yeah, it's good enough, no, it's not, yes, it is, no, it's like that, that thing we all get into where all of a sudden we're 12 years old in the back of a, our parents' car on a long road trip, and we're arguing about the space between us, right? Just doesn't really go anywhere. I just want to say that black women vote a lot more than white women vote. And if you want to get black people to vote, befriend a black woman. And I mean befriend until you know them. And then they're going to tell you, well, my nephew would vote, but he doesn't have a ride. Or my brother would vote, but he can't read. Right? So, and the same is true of young people, right? If you want young people to vote, do you have a young person who's your mentor? Who's not your, you're the mentor, right? You're teaching them how, you're learning from them how to talk to young people. So I think we've got, as white people, be really careful about saying, I wish black people could vote, because they've been voting a lot better than white women for a long time, and I want to learn from them about how to get the population out voting. That's not a question, sorry. Oh. Oh. <laughs> ne never apologize for a statement. Statements should be made. It's great. Yes, please. Canvas. You can get out and canvas and talk. Yes. Knock on doors and talk to the young people, especially the young black people around the universities. I was doing this in Greensboro, North Carolina, and I was blown away by how open-minded and how open these young people were, who were initially very apathetic. And, oh, if my vote, it's not going to count. And I would say, mm, no, let me show you why it would, and gave an, a specific example of a woman who in Virginia vote, uh, won by 8,000 votes, and every vote did count. And so a lot of these young people were also not registered, so they got registered that day. So it really helps to get out there and canvas with other people and with groups. Thank you. Thank you. Canvassing is a form of social support. So the reason you go to someone's door is because then they look at someone and they realize, oh yeah, I have a social obligation and a social uh, structure that will support me in this work. It's really great. It's five minutes left, so start your timer. Um, anybody else with a comment or question? Yeah. Learn deep canvassing techniques. Oh, learn deep canvassing techniques. We've been working with that, and it's amazing. No, I, I, and what you said really resonated with me. The, the way I've kind of tried to frame it is like, in politics, I'm always talking about, you know, who, vote based on are you better off than you were four years ago? And it's to me, it's more like, are, is your neighbor better off than they were four years ago? Um, but I, And then getting back to that point about, you know, um, 
young people and minorities not voting. One thing I think that we can do is once people are voted in, keep holding them to account. Like make them do everything you can to have a voice to try to make them make policies so that it looks like it matters. Because I think a lot of the cynicism comes out of, um, you know, why would I vote if nothing ever changes? Thank you for both of those comments. Um, deep canvassing, if you're not familiar with it, it's a longer conversation that you engage in when you approach someone and trying to help them talk about politics. And a lot of deep canvassers have found when they go to someone's door and they spend some time in conversation, that by the end the person will say things like, you know, we've talked more longer about this idea than I've ever talked about this. Like, people don't talk about it. We have no talk rules that are in play around our politics and our religion. There's just things you don't know. And as my three-and-a-half-year-old grandson, Wesley Puck, likes to say, don't talk about Bruno. So we've all got this don't talk about Bruno thing going on in all of this, and you got to talk about Bruno, right? We have to break the cycle of this stuff and be willing, and be willing to talk about it. And on holding politicians accountable, <clears throat> one of the realizations I've gone through in the last five years is just that how human politicians are. Being in a job of your state legislature or being your mayor or on your city council or your, you know, the president, they're just people. They're going to go to bed tonight and try to turn the pillow over and try to find a cool spot and think, oh, that feels better. Like, that's what they are. These are people systems. And politics wants us to talk about it's not about people. It's about policies and it's about position. And the more we can pull it into people, that's what deep canvassing does and all the rest of it, is it makes it about people. And we have to get a people movement. We had a little notion at the start of this grand country experiment that we said, we the people. In order. So it's a people movement. And we should take social system structures of people movement, not political strategies of power acquisition. So they're just different approaches to this, and some of it can give you life. And if you've been doing only power structure for a long time, this people movement's going to be a super cool breeze. But if you've been doing people movement stuff, then you're saying like, but you know, for all that, if we just got the right people in office and they had power, things would just get better. You might shift that way. So both of those things are going to exist. Two sides of the hemisphere, two ears, right and left foot, whatever. Both these power, uh, political power acquisition and people movement, social, uh, people social movement theory, we're going to need both of them. And some of us are better at some than are better at others. But we're all good at something. Yes, can you come up here? Because I can't bring in front of that mic. Voting is a ritual, right? Oh, nice. So I'd like to introduce a ritual. Doug, with which hand will you be marking your ballot in the next election? <laughs> yeah, I'm a lefty when I write. May love guide your hand to vote for the common good. Come on. Let's do it. With which hand will you be voting in the next election? May love guide your hand to vote for the common good. Do it with each other. I mean, this guy's stealing the thunder. I'm sitting right here, and he's like, I'm going to get these people to applaud just like that. That is great. Uh, do you have a session of your own that's coming up? What time is it and when? Tomorrow at 10. Anybody else have a session they're, they're doing uh, here that you're leading a session? Tell us what it is and where. What are you doing? Quantum physics, religion, and government, what do they have in common? What time is that one? Noon on Saturday. Hey, here's the thing. People don't read the schedules you give them, right? Because you're like, I didn't know that guy was doing a thing. I didn't know there was one on quantum uh, physics and religion, right? So it's okay. The oral tradition, still a pretty good tradition. So we should use it up. You've, you've got one coming? Manhood, the great deceit? Two tomorrow. And yours is when? Noon. Tomorrow. What's the topic at the campus ministry tent? Progressive campus ministry. Holy moly, we need progressive campus ministries. I tried it three different times and totally failed, so try to find somebody who can put this together because it is an, uh, there is a lot, a lot of political and uh, religious people are organizing on campuses, and it's not a lot of people we spend a lot of time with. Okay, we have one minute left. Can we stand up and do a little breath exercise together? Stand in, in heart or body. Okay, we'll just breathe together for a moment here. As, much com as comfortable as you can be with a full breath. 
Now I'll invite you to turn to someone, look them in the eye, and just breathe with them. Amazing amount of connection happens in a little bit, right? You're like, oh my gosh, what is going on right now? Some people that are paired up are like, I think I'm going to kiss you right now. I don't know what's happening. Right? It's just unbelievable. Literally, breathing and looking at each other is like, holy moly, there's a response to a predicament. All right, thanks for being with us at this one. Hit up these other ones and see us over at the tent if you want to do your own open mic kind of thing. All right, so there it was. That was a... Uh... That was a fun little session. Uh, over the course of the next number of days and weeks, you're going to see a number of other elements that came out of the Wild Goose Festival. Some sessions like that that are uh, presentations, some interviews that we did. We did a number of podcast interviews, so sometimes we're sitting with someone in just a conversation style, often like we do on other um, uh, other podcasts here. So I uh, hope you enjoyed it. Uh, Yabitz, Alex, uh, Jim... Uh, Mike, uh, others in the chat, thank you so much. Kara, uh, appreciate it. Christy, uh, even Kelly, appreciate all of your comments. Uh, glad to have you uh, with us here on the Common Good Podcast. Hey, if you know what we do at Vote Common Good, then, then glad to keep up with us. If you're new to all of it, head over to votecommongood.com. That's our website. You can sign up for our email. We send three emails a week, keeping you updated on things happening in the world and also actions and activities that we're up to. And the fall is coming, which is the time when we're going to start getting back out on the road. And we'll basically be out on the road uh, in and out for the next year uh, because things become even more clear this week that um, having Donald Trump be the president of the United States again is just an unacceptable option. And that is a predicament that requires all of our responses, and we at Vote Common Good will do everything that we can to uh, give us another possibility in this, uh, in this country. So thanks for being a part of all of this, and uh, uh, if you don't know, we already have a podcast version of this, and also sometimes we throw up some other things on the podcast than what happens here. So if you're a podcast listener, maybe you want to go over to our website and sign up for our podcast, or... Look for it wherever you look for your podcasts. Uh, but our website's a good spot for that. All right. Uh, thanks all for being a part of our, our community and being a part of this conversation today. And we will see you tomorrow.